Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another week, another Monday, where we are set to continue our exploration of the book of Genesis. You know, maybe for some of us, reading the book of Genesis in the past has raised more questions than it has answers. But it is my hope that in this study, some of those questions have been and continue to be answered we have been together now for over eight months. I went back to my website and I was going through some of the podcasts and uh, we picked up this study all but eight months ago and 64 podcasts ago. So here we are. And uh, hopefully if you are sticking with this study, we can say together that we are getting not more questions and answers, but yeah, answers to our questions. And hopefully that deeper sense of how God has the habit of working in salvation history. Now, that being said, we are in chapter 34. And in chapter 34, we have one of the most questionable and disturbing passages in the whole book of Genesis, right? I mean, essentially, what you have is one of Jacob's daughters being raped. And so to get revenge, her brothers go out and slaughter an entire city. If we are reading this text... For the first time, we might be asking, as did I when I first went through this text, why do the patriarchs behave in such an unholy manner? And also, we might be asking, where is God? Why didn't God intervene? Why does it appear that God is silent? Now, if you have been with me, all 64, 65 podcasts, you know to some degree that there is an answer to that question, but among other things this evening, we are going to address some of those questions, rehashing some of the things we have talked about before, but as always, putting it into the context of the narrative itself. All right, so with that, let us jump into chapter 34. So if you want to pull your Bibles out, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land, and when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humbled her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the maiden and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this maiden for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. But his sons were with his cattle in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. What is that verse all about? We'll talk about that. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry, because he had wrought folly in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. I beg you, give her to him in marriage." Make marriages with us, give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. 
You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask of me ever so much as marriage present and gift, and I will give according as you say to me, only give me the maiden to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who was uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you that you will become as we are and every male of you be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to ourselves and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and he will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he had delight in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his family. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are friendly with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters in marriage and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their cattle, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city hearkened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came upon the city unaware, and killed all the males. They slew Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword, and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. And the sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city, and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and made their prey. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister as a harlot? Wow. I mean, <laughs> brothers and, and sisters, these verses have a lot. So let us just kind of work through these verses and speak to the essence of what's going on here topically. In these opening verses, we read that although freed from foreign troubles, Jacob here clearly met with a great domestic calamity in the fall of his only daughter, Shechem raping his only daughter. Now, you might ask, how did Shechem get to know this daughter initially. Well, interestingly, according to the renowned first century historian Josephus, who you've heard me quote a great deal, Dinah had been attending a festival, but although she was attending a festival, it is highly probable that she had been often and freely mixing in the society of the place and 
that she, being a, a simple and, and inexperienced and vain young woman, had been flattered by the attentions of, of the ruler's son. So practically speaking, what are we to make of this? Well, there must have been time and opportunities for acquaintance, right, to produce this strong attachment that Shechem had for her, because we're just not dealing with a general, oh, I see her once and I'm lusting after her. The Hebrew here is very strong, and, and it's even strong in its rendering as the English translates, he longed with her for all his soul. So this very dramatic longing that was built up over at least two or more times of acquaintances. Now here I want to go back to verse 5, chapter 34, verse 5. There we read, Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his cattle in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they come. I mean, the question comes up, why does Jacob respond the way he does? And by that I mean, why doesn't he respond at all? Well, in antiquity, in the case of a family by different wives, and, and remember, Jacob has more than one wife, Rachel and Leah, so a father with more than one wife must turn to his sons, right, or her full brothers, on whom the protection of the daughter devolves. So the brothers are the guardians of a sister's welfare and ultimately the avengers of her wrongdoing. So it was for this reason that Simeon and Levi, the two brothers of Dinah by Leah, appear chief actors in this episode. Okay, so just a, another practical question answered there. Let us get into this wrath, this anger. Simeon and Levi... Uh, we know they are the men in, in verse 7, were grieved and were very angry. Uh, good men, we know, have every right to grieve for what happened. We should be grieving for what happened to Dinah. But it would have been well if their anger had been less or that they had known the precept, oh, that would be written 16, 1700 years later <laughs> in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, right? As we have discussed, brothers and sisters, no injury can justify revenge. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, this very thing. No injury can justify revenge. But, as we read, Jacob's sons planned a, a scheme of revenge in the most deceitful manner. My dear friends, we have talked a great deal about anger with a particular focus on the spiritual work of mercy, bearing wrongs patiently, right? We talked about that merciful act for others' sake, yes, but also, like all works of mercy, for our sake. Bearing wrongs patiently, a spiritual work of mercy that has us going back to the cross, because it is on the cross where Christ won by bearing patiently and bravely, the venom, the hatred, and the violence of this world to the very end. And how did he bear it? By retaliating? No. By hating? No. But by loving and enduring unto the end. Every Christian who bears wrongs patiently increases the size of that cross by the simple fact that Christ unites our suffering to his. And we are always to be aware of the logic to the revolution of what it means to bear wrongs patiently. And by that we mean darkness cannot drive out darkness. 
Only light can do that. Hatred cannot drive out hatred. Only love can do that. Pride cannot drive out pride. Only humility can do that. And so Jesus and every Christian who bears wrongs patiently drives out darkness by light, hatred by love, and, and pride by humility. One beam of light brings about great insight into a time of darkness because it is no longer filled with darkness but light, right? Now, sure, it's always to make the point, and, and I say this because, well, it would be so easy to look over or be tempted to be critical of what I'm saying now or this teaching on bearing wrongs patiently to note that there are times when we must defend ourselves and others. When the only way to repel the grave harm caused by a serious injustice is to disable it and remove it. There are times when we must actively resist evil and stand in its way. We must not tolerate evil. But the insight here in relationship to the work of mercy is that retaliation must not be our goal. Rather, our goal must be justice, always rooted in love and respect, with the deepest desire to end the cycle. And not to end the cycles to simply merely claim it as a victory that is an end in itself, because that just still in the end remains an evil, but as the necessary good for the deeper harmony that is to be in the body of Christ. If I seek to conquer and destroy evil too easily, brothers and sisters, we can become the very evil we seek to destroy. Even as I declare my victory, the evil still lives to strike again because of what resides in my heart, the bitterness, the resentment. The Christian who bears wrongs patiently says, in effect, it ends with me. I will take the blow like my Savior on the cross. I will not return it. This does not make me spineless, but rather courageous. So while we understand the, the fury of Simeon and Levi, what we must think about is the heroic love of Christ on the cross. Okay? All right, we'll come back to this here in a bit. I want to jump here down to verses 12 and 13. Uh, another very important point to be had just more topically. You know, the sons of Jacob answered. Isn't it interesting that they turn to the covenant here? Right? Circumcision was the external right by which we entered into covenant relationship with God, huh? But could that right make a Shechemite a true Israelite? No. And yet it does not appear that Jacob's sons required anything more. It is evident, my friends, that when you read this narrative in context, that they did not seek to convert Shechem, but only made a show of religion as a cloak to cover their diabolical design. That, my friends, is a very, very important point to be had. Another huge point, really. And what is it? Well, that hypocrisy and deceit, in all cases vicious, are infinitely more so when accompanied with a show of religion. You see, my friends, when religion is used as the cover-up, Oh, it's just not hypocrisy, but diabolical. And here the sons of Jacob, under the, the pretense of conscientious principles or scruples, conceal a shame of treachery that was diabolical. 
if we're going to take what I'm talking about right now for the past seven to 10 minutes and apply it to what is going on today, I know some of you are listening to this program and saying to me right now, Joe, I hope you are going to speak to what is happening in the Catholic Church and some of these cardinals, in particular Cardinal McCarrick. And I will. If you don't know, a cardinal was accused of sexual abuse. What makes this so wrong is that ultimately Cardinal McCarrick was using the status of who he was, a cardinal, and religion as a cover-up for what he did. These crimes of molestation that the Vatican just this past weekend came down hard on. Cardinal McCarrick is going to get the anvil here for sure. And yeah, it is right to reflect upon this situation as we're talking about this now for two reasons. A, what we must understand is we are talking about human nature. What is going on today was going on 36, 3700 years ago. Sin is tragedy. Grave sin is very tragic. Grave sin, hiding under the cloak, being covered by religion, is diabolical. It should infuriate us. It should infuriate us. But what did I just talk about? We need to pray for the salvation of souls here. We need to, as I was just talking about, resist this grave evil. Catholic, non-Catholic alike do anything that is necessary to make sure these things don't happen again. And I'll tell you, as a Catholic, be mindful that there are many, 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 many in the greater percentage of priests and cardinals that are holy, but to the unholy ones, we must pray for them. Um, maybe we can get a sense of why Simon and, and Levi did what they did when things like what Cardinal McCarrick did and what he's been accused of infuriate us to no end. And so we turn to the cross seeking a deeper understanding. You know, in verse 30, Jacob speaks of how this whole thing has troubled him. This atrocious outrage perpetrated on the defenseless citizens and their families clearly made the cup of Jacob's affliction overflow. And we may wonder that in, in speaking of it to his sons, why didn't he represent it as a, as a heinous sin, an atrocious violation of the laws of God and man? But as we read, he clearly dwelt solely on the present consequences. So why does Jacob appear to be more concerned about what his sons did as opposed to what Shechem did to his daughter? Well, let us be rest assured. Jacob was concerned, but again, this is why I speak to the law in antiquity, and one has to respect that law. So yeah, the pressing concern was his household. He is troubled because while he probably understood the anger of his sons, he was concerned about the well-being of his future offspring. Okay? Bottom line. Because if I'm wiped out, so is the great covenant that God had made with Abraham. And I'm sure uh, Jacob was wrestling with that. Now, I'm looking up at the clock, and I want to make sure that we speak to some of those initial questions I brought up, in particular to the patriarch's unholiness and in God's apparent silence. To some degree, we talked about it. But let me say this. God has always found a way to write straight with crooked lines, to make straight the way of our path. 
and by our path, I'm talking about how he makes straight the way of our concupiscent appetite, that our desires will always lead us to the unholy path. But he always writes that crooked path. And how does he do it? But in the cross. It is always the cross that not only straightens everything out, but unites it with God the Father. What do I mean? Well, think about the cross itself, right? The cross, that is to say the horizontal beam, makes straight whatever was crooked up unto that point. Christ is nailed to the cross, and when he's nailed to the cross, he essentially takes everything that is crooked and makes it straight. And as he makes it straight, he at once unites it with God in that vertical beam. The cross in its horizontal and vertical beams has always been a point of reflection for many Christians because there's much insight to be gained upon it. In the cross, we have a sign that is a kind of correction of just not how we act, but also how we think. Earlier, I was talking about bearing wrongs patiently. We asked the question, well, how does he make it straight? Well, he can do that because he's God. But we can do that in our own lives by imitating and sharing in the mystery of the cross. When we are nailed to the cross... We make straight what was crooked in our own life. So very important reflection there. What about God's silence? Well, I think God himself answers that silence in his response to Job. When Job is asking all of these questions and God finally answers with the simple response that, well, you are not God. And just think critically for a second, Job. I am not only God who is creator, but also father. Do you not think that I would just leave all of my creation in the material world, but more importantly, moreover, my sons and daughters, orphans? Of course not. Think about that. But because I can never impose upon human freedom, because love can never do that, right? This is the the crown jewel insight that the Christians, first Christians gave us. Love always comes from within, not from without, right? You can never impose love. You can never tell me to love you because love must always come from within if it's going to bear the necessary fruit. God will never impose. So God will work silently, doing all that is necessary for the salvation of the greater whole. As many as he could save, he will save. Just as a father and or mother works behind closed doors, in ways their young children would never know to bring about the greater good. So does God the Father do that? And he's been doing that for all of history. Now, what else here? In response to those questions, a lot of these stories come back to bite them, really. You know, and you say, well, why didn't God intervene here and there? Outside of what I just shared with you, we have to remember that, you know, a good chunk of Genesis could be defined as Adam's pedigree just continually putting their foot in their mouth, sticking their foot in their mouth, and ultimately to only stumble upon their own undoing. Brothers and sisters, sometimes divine retribution means just letting events have their natural consequence, right? Sometimes the best lesson is the experience of passing through the difficulty that has been brought about by your own undoing. 
the natural consequences of your, your immoral act. Now, Jesus says you are to pay, pay the last penny, so we have to be mindful of this and be resolved to change. This is what repentance is all about. But yeah, a point to be had for sure. Lastly, we have to remember that scriptures, brothers and sisters, were written to be studied and taught within the, the teaching and, and living traditional culture of that time. Right? They were not meant to be taken and isolated from their context 36, 3700 years later and read like some modern moral novel. Okay, Another point we have talked about, but a point to make nonetheless, because as the question arises, why, why didn't God intervene here or there? There's things to think about that once we do think about, as we reflect upon them this evening, should have us rethinking how we think about the stories we read. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, would you just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift to be able to just reflect into the richness of your word that we might discover <laughs> the deeper we dive into your inexhaustible riches, a riches which has at its center love and the gift of love we might discover what that looks like, just not in salvation history, but also in our own lives. That as we discover what your inexhaustible love looks like in our own lives, we might then go deeper and deeper to explore what it is, in fact, you are turning over to us, the gift of your very life, which is at once the gift of your cross. And for this we pray, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.